the first question we have to ask is, and questions often asked to me is, why are you a conservative? Why are you a conservative politician? What exactly is it about the party that you are part of? And I'm very proud to be a part of the British Conservative Party. It's the oldest political party in the world. It traces its roots back to Bolingbroke, and then it's sort of the form it's in today, going back to 1832. And the question then is, how is it still here? Because there are so many political parties, and they come and they go. And the reason it's still here is it's because we're a broad church, and we move with the times. And that's always very, very difficult to do. And I always used to say, and we don't really have an ism on the end. So is it socialism, communism, conservatism? Conservatism is a very sort of loose phrase, and it covers a whole range of things. So we're still here, and uh, we fight to stay in power, naturally. And I'm one of those, certainly for the last 35 years, that has tried to do my best uh, to represent my party. But also one of the key things about the Conservative Party, what does it actually mean? It means small state. It means all of us taking responsibility. It means trying to create uh, jobs, trying to make sure we keep as much of our money as possible, and trying to make sure that we have a framework where those who are vulnerable, for example, will have care, be looked after, and so a good welfare state. But we also are a party of opportunity, and that's where it's hugely important. But one of the other key things about conservatism and about the party is, what else does it stand for? Well, it stands for nothing unless it stands for freedom of speech. And it stands for nothing unless it stands for the fact that we can debate issues which I would say in recent years has become more and more difficult. I'm just going to touch on two examples. They've been talked about throughout this conference. Uh, one is COVID, uh, one is climate change, which has been touched on. And I'll also touch on, at the end, uh, cancel culture. Uh, for those from English-speaking countries who are here, they know immediately what I'm saying. Those of you from other countries may not have the same terminology, but I think you'll certainly understand what I mean. So if I go to the first point I wanted to raise, which was COVID. Uh, you've already touched on, my good colleagues here, the reliance that we've had on China when we were looking to bring in PPE, obviously for the medics, and uh, it was an absolute shock, clearly, all of the member states, all of the countries around the world had some sort of uh, medical supplies, but it was nothing because over the decades, we'd basically farmed out uh, the manufacturing of these, these goods, and it, and it certainly uh, became a huge problem. But also, one of the best things from my point of view was that, um, and for the right reasons, was that as a former MEP here, I was also one of those who supported the UK leaving the European Union. And, <laughs> it was not because we're anti-European, we're anti-EU. It doesn't work like that. 
When I was at school, I had a French pen friend, and she was fantastic, and I went to Epernay, and that was the first time I ever traveled abroad. I lived in Mallorca for a year, and in a, worked in a holiday village before I joined British Airways. I left British Airways. I spent four years in Austria in the mountains, uh, and I spent nearly 20 years in Brussels. So you could say, you know, it, my background, I've been around, as they say, I've been around. Um, and I love the culture of Europe. I love the culture of all of the countries I've ever visited. And I think we all bring something to the table. So when people sort of say, oh, the Brits are very anti-Europe, they're very anti-EU, that's not the case at all. And I think all of you in this audience recognize that when you see the contribution, when you see the working together that we're all trying to do in these difficult times with Ukraine. But it brings me back now to, if I may, because I digressed, on, on to COVID. So there was the reliance on the PPE. And then there were steps that were taken by governments. And there became one narrative. China locked down. Well, first of all, China was involved in the cover-up because China knew that they had a problem at least four months before they told the WHO. They were temperature testing passengers at airports in China who were going to be flying out of China. And for all the years I spent in the airline industry, I have never been into an airport and been temperature tested unless there would have been a problem. And it's never actually happened to me. So they kept that quiet. Now, whether four months notice would have been helpful for all of us, I don't know, but it may have mitigated it to a certain extent. But it just replicated their position on SARS back in 2003, 2004, when it took them six months to actually tell the WHO about that. So there we are with the reliance, and then we looked at the steps that they took. And the first thing they did was they had a lockdown. So then we all had lockdowns. And I will just say this, we have never in our history locked down fit and well people before. What we tended to do was find those who were vulnerable, find those who were ill, and then we would then isolate those people, those patients, and we would treat them. The consequences of the lockdowns, we had three in the UK and some areas had more, and some of you had it much worse than us, I know, in other Western European countries. This is why I find it so unbelievable, is that the consequences that followed, because we were following the science on children, on people being isolated, the mental health issues that have evolved from this have been absolutely horrendous. So we had the jargon, it was, you know, stay at home, stay safe, stay two meters or six foot six inches apart, depending where you live, and follow that science. But the problem was, there was only one narrative. And there were scientists, for example, who were involved in what was called the Great Barrington Declaration, from Stanford, from Oxford, and they didn't agree with the steps that were being taken. They thought they were too, too punitive, and they thought that we should actually be focusing on those who were vulnerable instead of locking up society, which was turning into a complete catastrophe, both medically and also economically, because we know the costs uh, that have followed. But the vaccine was gonna be the silver bullet. And of course, from our point of view, where we were pretty pleased was that we made our decisions about the vaccine over in the UK. Uh, the people put in charge of doing that did a terrific job. 
and the rest is history on that. Uh, but notwithstanding, also the key to this vaccine, as good as they are, is that even if you have it, you can still contract uh, COVID and you can still actually give COVID to somebody else. But it should mitigate it and hopefully you're not going to end up in hospital and we're not going to die of this vaccine. Whether it's dying of it or with it, of course, when you look at statistics, they are two very different things. And then there was the wear a mask. Wear a mask. Well, if you're in a hospital with a hospital mask, it's a very different thing. So people were then walking around and they're putting them on children and babies and whatever, as though a microbe is going to judge whether somebody's got a mask on in that row or hasn't got a mask on that row. So it's about being grown up and it was about taking responsibility, which we did. But my final point on this is about that narrative. Nobody was allowed to challenge the narrative. Because if you challenge the narrative, you were seen as an anti-vaxxer, you were seen as a troublemaker, and that could be said of, as I said, eminent scientists who believe that we should have taken a different approach on this, and we'll live and learn as time goes on. And the media played its part. In the United Kingdom, our media were given 30 million pounds, or whatever as a budget, until March this year, and they came out, I think in the other countries too, with all the adverts, Don't, you know, keep the windows open, keep the children, no, it went on and on. And the propaganda and the propaganda and this horrendous messages that were terrifying people to death mean that we still have people in the UK, and you will too, who are terrified to go out. And this is the consequence when these sorts of big issues are not challenged. The second issue I'd also like to bring up is climate change. And here's climate change again. Or was it called global warming? It was called global warming a few years ago. And I think all of us recognize clearly we are great polluters. Of course we are. One of the biggest issues I have, actually, is them dealing with the plastics in the oceans and the plastic pollution that is all over the world. Whether the temperature goes up or whether it goes down, maybe it is going up, maybe it's not. We've been through ice age, we've been through all sorts of things. But what is the issue for me is this narrative again. If you challenge Greta, who's fabulous, because she's a young woman who has a real passion for things, I have no issue with that. I have no issue with protests. I don't care who's around. Come on, bring on your banners. Do what you, do what you want. Um, that's the whole thing about free speech and democracies. But what you can't do is start closing down other sides of an argument. And this is precisely what has also happened with climate change. So as soon as you raise or you question, you're a climate change denier. You clearly don't accept that there's anything wrong, when actually we are responsible people and we know there are massive challenges ahead. I look at my own industry. You look at aerospace sector, for example. Many of you will have flown over. You're flying on some of the greenest, cleanest technology that man has ever, and woman, invented. Because that's what our scientists, this is what competition which is another conservative thing. This is what about free markets and competition do. They drive each other, and they drive the product to what the customer wants. And this is why we now manufacture great, clean products that we all fly around with or on. And what are we up against there? 
with the climate change, I'd say, fanatics, basically. Oh, well, you can't fly. I mean, the pollution. Well, it's actually 3% of CO2 that the whole industry actually discharges. And of course, there are other pollutants too. But the industry's taken it very seriously, and it will continue to do so. And we've made great strides. But they're used as a scapegoat all of the time. And it's not acceptable because the industry, the supply chain, hospitality, they're underpinning tens of millions of jobs throughout the world. And they too have been absolutely devastated by COVID. And this is why it's so brilliant that we're all sitting here today face to face, because I never really want to do another Zoom. I am Zoomed out. And apparently, <laughs> and apparently uh, the guy who created Zoom said, he was actually, this was last year, he said he was so sick of Zoom meetings, even though he sort of invented them for his company. He said he didn't really want to have to attend one again because that ambiance, those relationships, that buzz we get from talking to each other, whether we agree or disagree, can never ever be replaced. So I stood up in the House of Lords recently and I did say, just for the record, I will never, ever, ever be locked down again in my entire lifetime. And back on climate change, I always digress, I'm a typical politician. I always think of things as I go along. Um, this aim for net zero and the consequences for net zero have not been thought through on the impact for the normal families and households. We're talking in the UK about, oh, everybody needs to have a heat pump. They cost five or 10,000 pounds. We have people living in the UK, they earn £20,000 a year. That's a lot of the blue-collar, working-class, hard-working families. And it seems to be, again, this narrative as though we have to do all of this at the expense of everything else. Let's all be, when I was here in the European Parliament, oh, let's be, uh, we are the EU, we are the EU, we are Europe, we must be showing the way while they dump all their garbage across the world in India and Africa and places where you find waste all over the place. But it's all right because we can't see it. But what we have to do, we have to tackle our own problems here and stop dumping them on the rest of the world just to make us in, in Europe and Western Europe feel good. So. So all I'd say on that is we just need to take a pragmatic approach. And this is, I think, where it's been pointed out in this conference the situation in Ukraine, if it hasn't woken people up yet to what energy security means, then it hasn't woken them up. Because we have, as has been said, so reliant on countries that really are quite dubious in what their intentions are, that we cannot continue like this. And the sooner we can become self-sufficient in energy and in other matters, and the sooner that we can make sure the countries that we do trade with, we manufacture with, are our friends and our allies, then that's the sooner the better. And I think that's what they're genuinely working on at this moment in time. So my final point, anyway, we're going to fight back on all of these things. I know I can just see it in the audience, although I can't see a thing because the lights are so bright. But anyway, I'd just like to conclude now on this very thorny issue, which I don't, again, as I said, normally speak on, 
and it's called cancel culture. Because free speech, free speech, disagree, disagree. Cancel culture. You've all heard of J.K. Rowling, haven't you? Harry Potter, yeah? Your kids will have seen the films. She's written books. It's in all the languages around the world. One of the most successful writers. And J.K. Rowling, she had the audacity to speak at some conference or other, and she was asked a question, she said, about, and it was really comes into the whole transgender debate, about genders, females, males. And she said there are two sexes, there are males and females. She has had death threats. <coughs> and politicians are having death threats. Because this isn't about people who are transgender. The vast majority of people who, for medical reasons and other reasons, have changed their, well, you can never change your sex. Your sex is determined from the, the minute that we come into being inside the womb. But we accept there will be those who don't feel as though they're in the right body. And that's a fair point. And that has to be dealt with sensitively and properly. But there are also the trans activists, and these are a very active group of people, predominantly men who are transing or who are basically saying that they identify as women, who wish to be called and described as women. They are not women. And we women, and I rarely speak on women's issues, we women who in my country over 100 years ago managed to get the vote, and it's been the same in your countries too, who have kicked the glass ceiling for all of these decades since and before for equal opportunities, not to be treated differently or better, for equal opportunities to be sitting here today, standing here today, doing all the things that we do. We expect proper safeguarding to be in place, whether it's for us, who are older women, or for our children and young women. We do not expect our young daughters or nieces to be in a changing room in a shop where they're changing into their dresses and things, and uh, a man walks in who identifies as a woman, but he can't be stopped from walking in because he says, I'm a woman. We've also got the horrendous situation where we've got men going into women's prisons in the UK because they identify as women. Or they're going to a refuge where women have gone to a refuge for safety, and they say they can't stop a man going in there either, under human rights law. I'm sure there's a few lawyers here. And what is also, I think, a nightmare is that if this isn't dealt with, it's going to get worse. And from our American friends here, just a final comment on this. At the moment, you may have seen on social media, I'm on Twitter, by the way, and uh, you'll have seen on social media about the Ivy League swimming competitions. And there is a male swimmer who's been accepted into the female team in Ivy League University. And until three years ago, he was competing as a man. He has the lung capacity of a man. He will have the strength of a man. And he will win the race by one and a half seconds more than the second competitor. And of course, the girls, because they're young, aren't they? 
they're very, very disturbed about all of this. And I'm on Twitter saying, you've got to fight back. And they say, well, we can't because our scholarships may be withdrawn. And I said, there's times in life, if you all stand up, whether you're track and field athletes, whether you are swimmers, whatever you may be, you've got to stand together along with your parents and you've got to face down these authorities that are allowing this to happen. It cannot continue to happen. Not least because if all the girls stand down and the young women, the universities won't have a team at all for the women's section, will they? What are they going to have, one or two people or none? So this is a serious issue. And uh, as I say, it's not an issue I would normally talk about. But there are three areas that I've tried to just bring in this morning, or this afternoon now, pretty well. I'm still on UK time. Um, just to bring into this, because it's not just about national sovereignty, it's about how the dialogue's going, how the narrative's going, how free speech is being closed down, how we are forward-looking, we are all-embracing, and I want to live in a country that's all-embracing. I have my gay friends. I fought alongside them to make sure that they had equal and similar rights and the same rights to me quite right, but they are being undermined with this trans agenda too, so it's not just women, women's rights. So there are organisations and they are actually not helping at all. So we need to actually take up the challenge and we need to do it collectively and we need to do it in a sensible and pragmatic way. So I think, as I said, uh, Mr Moderator, I think I've probably spoken for longer than I was going to in any event. Um, but as I said, it's been a great pleasure to be here and a great pleasure to listen to other speakers. I hope I've brought something to the table that we maybe want to just think about and talk about as well, along with obviously these massive issues that are happening with Russia and Ukraine and our security for the future. Um, but once again, thank you for having me and maybe I'll see you all again sometime. Thank you. <laughs>